One of the reasons that I, you know, I kind of try to avoid this book. I've shared that with you a little bit, and one of those was this, is it would be very easy to kind of get in the rut of saying the same things kind of over and over again, because that's basically what you get from Job's three friends. They say the same things kind of over and over again. Uh, but there is some difference that you find. Uh, if you were to jump into, and I'm not going to read it this morning, uh, into chapter 21, or actually chapter 22, uh, this is where Eliphaz, you know, one of those three friends of Job, responds to what Job has just said to, to Zophar. Uh, and there's a sense in which he says a lot of the same things that he has before, but at the same time, there's a greater intensity behind it. So far, they have indirectly accused Job of wrongdoing. You know, basically the message from them is you're in the situation you're in because of things that you've done against God and you're suffering as a result of those things. So what do you need to do is you need to repent and stop doing it and God will bless you. We've seen that over and over again, but they haven't brought any direct charges against Job. They've just they've accused him of wrongdoing, but they haven't said anything specific about him. I'm not going to read it, but this is what you would find if, if you read chapter 22. And that is, Eliphaz at this point begins to make specific allegations against Job. And what he says are things like this, is that you have exacted pledges of your brothers. You have stripped the naked of clothing. You have given no water to the weary. You've withheld bread from the hungry. You've sent widows away empty. You have crushed the arms of the fatherless. So he is coming out point blankedly and calling Job a sinner and telling him that the reason where he, he's suffering what he is now is a direct result of his sin. And just remember, this is the man of whom God said early on, there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So the point I'm trying to make here is the real depth of the arrogance of these three guys. That they are so convicted of their own understanding that they are willing at this point to go way beyond what they've done before. They're actually accusing him directly of particular sins. So what we're seeing here is even though they have shown some degree of restraint up to this point, they haven't, they've been on the attack, but they haven't a direct, there hasn't been a direct assault on him. Now that is what's happening now. They have used some degree of restraint in the things that they said. But from this point on, the door's wide open. And just remember, we've said this a number of times, and you're probably getting tired of hearing it, uh, that Job became Satan's target not because he was a bad person, but because he was a very good person. 
He's suffering not because of his own badness. He's suffering because of his own goodness. So we're going to read chapter 23 and 24. This is Job's response to Eliphaz. Job answered and said, Today also my complaint is bitter. My hand is heavy on account of my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would, uh, would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Would he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There's an upright man. Uh, there an upright man could argue with him, and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I do not perceive him. On the left hand, when he is working, I do not behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I do not see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. My foot is held fast to his steps. I have kept his way and have not turned aside. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than any uh, than my portion of food. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires that he does, for he will complete what he appoints for me, and many such things are in his mind. Therefore, I am terrified at his presence. When I consider, I am in dread of him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me, and I'm not silenced because of the darkness, nor because the thick darkness covers my face. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty, and why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks, they seize flocks and pasture them, they drive away the donkey of the fatherless, they take the widow's ox for a pledge, they thrust the poor off the road, and the poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out to their toil, seeking gain. The wasteland yields food for their children, they gather their fodder in the field, and they glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked without clothing and have no covering in the cold. They are wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for the lack of shelter. They are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast and they take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked without clothing. Hungry, they carry the sheaves. Among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil. They tread the wine presses but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the the dying groan and the soul of the wounded cries for help, yet God charges no one with wrong. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with its ways and do not stay in its paths. The murderer rises before it is light, that he may kill the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No eye will see me. And he veils his face in the dark. They dig them through houses. By day they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. For deep darkness is morning to all of them. For they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. You say, Swift are they on the face of the waters. Their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns toward their vineyards. Drought and heat snatch away the snow water. So does Sheol, those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. The worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered. So wickedness is broken like a tree. 
They wrong the barren, childless woman and do not uh, do no good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security and they are supported and his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted a little while and then are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. It is not so who will prove, if it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say. This is a third time that Job has responded to Eliphaz. I think most of us would attest to the fact that severe suffering has the potential of doing a number of things in regard to we ourselves. Unrelenting torment will either embitter you, it will break you, or it will strengthen you. It will either embitter you, it will break you, or it will strengthen you. What I would say of Job at this point is that his torment has mostly embittered him. He has not turned the corner yet. He doesn't understand. It makes no sense. But we know the rest of the story, just like we've said so many times in recent weeks. We know the rest of the story, and we know that in the end, all that Job is going through will strengthen him. He will be more the man of God when it's all over than he was when this all started. Again, in 23 verses 3 through 10, Job demands an opportunity to lay his case before God, that surely if he were to appear in God's courtroom, then he would be able to explain things to God and, and, and work out whatever uh, differences they have between one another. He says, you see, he wants that opportunity to speak directly to God on his own behalf. He alludes to this a number of times, and we've already seen a few of those. Can you imagine the arrogance of a person believing that somehow, some way, they're going to be able to enlighten God to his wrongful understanding or his wrongful ways? But how often do we do that ourselves? Job is convinced at this point, if he's just given the opportunity, he's going to be able to convince God, and he will help God see the light. He has to believe at this point, God just doesn't see, God just doesn't understand what the circumstances are. Go further in the book, chapter 38 through 41. Job gets his opportunity, and you know what his response is? Shut my mouth. <laughs> Why would I ever thought for a minute that I could ever explain anything to God or show God the error of his ways? So let me ask you something. What is the end result very often when you are experiencing physical, emotional, or mental pain or whatever sort of pain it is? Does it embitter you? Does it 
break you. And let me tell you, it will never strengthen you until you are actually broken by it. Job, at this point, is embittered. But he won't stay there. I would imagine in the years to come, he'll be, he'll be thinking things like, Lord, I didn't see it, I didn't understand it when I was going through it, but thank you, Lord, for doing it. Because it brought me to places I never would have ventured before. It didn't distance me from you as Satan thought it would do. What it did is it brought me closer to you. And we need to look upon the trials and tribulations that we go through in the same light. Sometimes they're very much unjust. We would say that there's a sense from a human perspective that what's going on with Job is very unjust. We know ultimately it's not unjust because God doesn't do anything unjustly, right? Again, Job begins to cry out for that audience. When he, if he could just appear in God's courtroom, he could settle everything, straighten everything out. And when we think about that, we always need to think about what's coming in the end. When every person that has ever breathed the air will give an accounting to God for what they've done in their life. You need to understand that those who do not have Christ will suffer dearly for eternity for their rebellion against God. Believers, on the other hand, will be rewarded according to what they have done with what God has given to them. In other words, have they used what he has given to them for his glory, or have they used those things more for their own glory? Job sees death as the great leveler. In other words, he's alluded to this a couple of times, and that is he sees death as that point where all people become equal with each other because all people die. And there's a limited sense in which is that true, but the, thing of, the fact of the matter is, is we know there's a lot more that comes after that. There's a sense in which the death is the great leveler. It's the point at which there is a great difference made by God between who the, those who are truly his and those who are not. Job is a sinner. And let me tell you, if he's not, then God was unjust in all that he did. But we know that Jesus is the perfectly sinless one, and he's the only one that is and ever has been. Job was righteous. He stood out among people. He was a head above everybody else. But that does not mean that Job was not a sinner. In fact, we know that Job is a sinner, and in some of the things that he said certainly have a smattering of sin associated with them. I mean, he's questioning God's right 
in authority. Every time we sin, that's exactly what we're doing. Not only that, Job is a person, a human being like all the rest of us who are born into sin. It's been true of every person since the Garden of Eden. In verse, or chapter 23, verses 13 through 17, he returns to the concept that God, in fact, is sovereign. He knows that God is sovereign. But Job doesn't feel any consolation as a result of that. What that does at this point in Job's life is it terrifies him. But not quite enough to shut his mouth. He basically says that God makes up his own rules and lives by them. He does what he wishes and owes no one any explanation. Let me ask you something. Do we fear God enough? Is there enough fear of God in us to, to silence us before him? See, ultimately, the root of sin is this. That we think God is accountable to us rather than we are accountable to him. We think often that he owes us an explanation when in fact he doesn't. It is his show. And we are only invited guests. You and I have one reason and one reason only to fear the wrath of holy God. And that is simply because Jesus Christ has endured the very wrath of God that was due to us. That is what will save us on the day of judgment. Nothing else will. Jesus is our intercessor today, tomorrow, and forevermore. In chapter 24, you're going to find that Job is struggling for an answer to a question that he's alluded to before. And it basically is, why is he the one noted for, for his practice of righteousness? Why is it that he is suffering while the wicked continue in their dirty deeds and yet seemingly suffer no adverse consequences for them? Talked about this a lot last week, and it's easy for us to look around and we see people doing all kinds of awful, terrible things, and it doesn't seem to be that they're suffering at all as a result of it. Sometimes they even prosper in the middle of it. I mean, it's a fundamental question that's bothered people all along, and that is why does God allow sometimes the wicked to prosper while the needy are made to even suffer by them? 
In other words, very often when the wicked are prospering, they're doing it at the expense of other people. Other people are suffering so that they can prosper. You know, I can look around and we can find all kinds of examples of that happening today. History is replete with examples of, of people in authority, kings and nations and etc. that for a time prospered greatly. The crazy thing is this, <laughs> is if you pull it all together, what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar has said to this point, this has been their argument against Job, and that is this, is they've been saying all along that the wicked don't prosper, but the fact of the matter is the realities of life is you and I just look around and we just see an example of it after example of it after example of it. It's one of the most fundamental things that we see happening on in the world around us. I mean, we have all seen, we have all heard, we've all experienced in life that the wicked often do, in fact, prosper. And sometimes without many negative consequences at all. And we wonder, we wonder why God lets it happen. Why does God allow it? See, Job is saying, you're saying one thing to me, my dear three, three dear friends, but I see something that is actually very different than the picture that you're painting. You keep telling me that only the wicked suffer. That's been your message from day on. And I just look, and without hearing anything else from you, I see it all over the place. There are terrible, awful, wicked people all over the place that are seemingly prospering a very great deal at this point. Your argument is false. Your argument is fake. And yet you keep saying the same thing over and over again. You keep telling me that I am suffering because I am more wicked than other people. And like I said, Eliphaz has just given specific examples of accusations he's now directly bringing against Job. Very heinous crimes against people. So what keeps us going in the midst of all of this? Well, faith. Faith is it. I mean, it's the clue to everything. Not faith in ourselves, not faith in our understanding of things. It's faith in God. Faith in his ability, faithful in his knowledge, faith in his understanding.
Our promised prosperity does not lie in this land, in this world. Our promised prosperity prosperity lies in the new heavens and the new earth. This is not our home. We are aliens in a foreign land. Some of you suffer a great deal financially. You, you struggle to get by month by month by month. Some other people here don't have those struggles. But maybe at some time in their life they did, and so they understand. So easy for us to get weighted down with the worries and the wants and the problems of the world. And we will become very much like Job's friends if we, if we dwell there. But what I'm challenged with over and over again is to, to, to move things more and more from the reality in which we are living right now into the reality of eternity. That's where our true blessings lie. In our promised land. The new heavens and the new earth. One of these days, all of these hurts and harms and struggles and strife, etc. between people will be gone forevermore. Do you long for the day when you will truly love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength? Really? Is that what your passion is? Is that what your desire is? And it's only through that, in, in that, that you will be able to then love your neighbor as you love yourself. We aren't there yet. That we have God's promise that we will be. And God never lies. God is always faithful in doing what he promises he will do. That is our strength. That is our anchor. That is what holds us on course. It's hard for us to give up and give in. We want control. We want what we say and what we think to make a difference, to be the primary difference. But I would challenge us with the idea that what we need to do, what all church people need to do more and more and more is to learn to listen to God. And abide by what he says. So much struggle and strife would disappear if only we would do that. In the meantime, we are a body of believers. Very different in many, many ways. Different backgrounds, different lives in all kinds of ways. 
But nonetheless, God has brought us together to be a body of believers, to learn to love each other in hard times and easy times, etc., 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 not to respond to things as the world responds to things, but to respond to things according to the will and purpose of God our Father who loves us and our Savior Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that indwells us. In their name we pray. Amen.